You take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians in chapter 2. And let's pray before we read verses 12 to 18 of Philippians 2. Lord, to whom else can we turn? You have the words of life everlasting. So we come to you this afternoon and we cry to you for mercy, that you would meet with us and deal with us. Where our hearts are just ever so proud and diamond hard, would you humble us? Where we're backsliding, would you arrest us and bring us back to you? When we're downcast, when we're depressed, the courage, would you fill our hearts with the dependability of your promises? that our fears may be replaced with confidence. Where we've grown weary, would you show us your promise to reward those who do not grow weary or faint and remind us of the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so that we might not grow weary but might run our race with perseverance. Speak your word with power, that we might become like your Son. Call us out of darkness into light. And everything, in everything that we say, in everything that we do, in everything that we pray, in everything that we sing, that you would have the glory, and you would have the honour, and it be for our eternal good, in Jesus' name. Amen. To Philippians 2, and I'll read verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud I did not run in vain or labour in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad, rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Amen. We thank the Lord he's spoken to us in the reading of his words. Paul, in verses 5 through 11, if you remember, he has been turning and we in some small way try to spend some time there. But Paul has been turning the diamond, if you like, that multifaceted diamond of the person and the work of Christ. And he showed us different facets of how, who he is and all that he has done. And if you think about that, I mean, how can it be that this God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we think about his humiliation, but then his exaltation, and how he's seated at the right hand of the throne on high. And in our passage this afternoon, in 12 to 18, we see some implication of those rich truths that we have been reveling in recently. And Paul's concern here is that we understand that the word of God in general, but the truth about Christ in particular, has implications. And what do I mean by that? Well, it should be the end of our pride. It should be where we humble ourselves, and it should be transformative. 
Because when we glimpse Christ, there is always a therefore. Our Puritan forebearers certainly understood that truth. William Perkins defined theology, which is the study of biblical truth, as the science of living blessedly before God. Archbishop James Usher, whose catechism influenced the writing of the Westminster Standards, said, What do you call doctrine that showeth the way unto everlasting happiness? And he answered, it's commonly termed theology, the study of the word of God. And he said, the way to happiness is steeped in biblical truth. And we know that to be true. When we stray from, from the biblical truth is when we go array. So the way to live the blessed life is to understand therefore that is consequent on the study of Jesus as he is presented to us in every page of the Bible. And that's Paul's concern in these famous verses, verses 12 to 18. You see, having shown us who Jesus is, um, in having turned the diamond, if you like, of his person and his work, and displayed its glory in a breathtaking manner in verses 5 to 11, when we can only fall on our knees and worship, he now says, therefore. The first word we read was therefore. So there's a consequence, there's an implication to what we've been studying. Therefore, seeing who Jesus is should change you in the following ways. There's a therefore with every glimpse of the beauty and the glory and the grace of who Christ is and what he has done. That's very simply what I want to say. Who Christ is, what he has done, with that glimpse of that beauty and glory, there's a therefore. There are three things he shows us in this passage that follow from a clear view and a clear grasp of Jesus Christ as he's been presented to us by the Apostle Paul. Number one, work. Verses 12 and 13, you saw that, I'm sure. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both the will and to work, for his good pleasure. So it's three times there, work. So the first thing Paul says is that a true knowledge and a true grasp of the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ should promote and produce in our hearts as Christians work. And you see that word repeated again and again. Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you um, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work is the fruit of a firm grasp of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But for Paul, work is another word for obedience. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now work out your own salvation. Obedience is what it means to work out your salvation, to live out the reality of the saving grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. So obedience and growing in person, personal godliness for Paul. Obedience and growing in personal godliness for Paul is not a matter, whatever our dear sister Fanny Crosby said to the contrary, of perfect submission, perfect delight. No, it's hard, relentless work. It is work out your own salvation. 
Now we we have to stress again. This is been this is for the Christian who wonderfully has been saved. This is not how we are saved. This is what it means to be saved. So there's no passengers that are carried along passively by the Holy Spirit to arrive at holiness without labour and diligence and daily effort. Work out your own salvation. The pursuit of holiness is not effortless. It is hard work. So that's the first thing to say about having a clear grasp of the glory of the grace of God in the gospel. How should you respond after you've trusted in Christ to save you? You must labour for his glory by seeking obedience to his word. That is the message of the Bible. J.C. Ryle said, Whose fault is it if believers are not holy? But their own. Or on whom can they throw the blame if they're not sanctified? But themselves. God who has given them grace and a new heart and a new nature has deprived them of all excuse if they do not live for his praise. J.C. Ryle said, this is a point which is forgotten. A man who professes to be a Christian while he sits still content with a low degree of sanctification, if indeed he has any at all, and coolly tells you he can do nothing, he is a pitiable sight and an ignorant man. That's not my words, that's J.C. Ryle. A pitiful sight and an ignorant man. Against this delusion, J.C. Ryle says, let us watch and be on our guard. The word of God also always addresses its precepts to believers as accountable, responsible beings. And listen to this, this is from J.C. Ryle. If the saviour of sinners gives us renewing grace and calls us by his spirit, we may be sure he expects us to use our grace and not go to sleep. Paul is seeking to awaken slumbering Christians who think that the Christian life is just passive. He's wanting to awake us to the reality that it's a life of labour for the honour of Jesus Christ who gave all for us, who held nothing back, who poured himself out that we might be his own. Salvation is something we work out, Paul says. Just as we work out what it means to be married, we, we are married, we are married, but we work out what it means. Um, so Paul says, we are saved, work out your own salvation. And then he goes on to say, with fear and trembling. There are two dangers we need to avoid as we think about fear and trembling. There are those who have such a po poverty-stricken, a paltry, slight view of God, that they have no category at all to make sense of this language of fear and trembling. So if, a, if, if someone, if a man's view of God is some safe, kindly, benevolent, indulgent being who never demands too much, you know, like a favourite uncle, you know, with a beard who just says, there, there, who never challenges or presses or to change, to transform, who's just there to bail us out when we need him, who smiles and rolls his eyes when we make mistakes along the way. Well, fear and trembling before such a God is inconceivable. You don't fear some, something like that. But on the other extreme, on the other extreme, because we are creatures of extremes, the other extreme is 
to have such an exalted view of the glory and purity and sovereignty and holiness of God that we haven't grasped the tenderness, the tenderness of the Father's heart toward us in Jesus. So we hear these words fear and trembling and we think that Paul means we're to be so afraid that God might wash his hands of us that we, that we seek to stay in line with commands of Scripture, seek to stay obedient, lest at a moment's notice he might dismiss us forever. That's not living in the joy of your salvation. We're to be scared of him. But you see, both, are, both extremes are distortions of who God is. What Paul has in mind is the fear and trembling of a child who knows they are loved and who loves Abba Father and for whom the worst thing imaginable is grieving the father whom they adore. The worst thing is grieving him who gave his son for them. So this is reverent, this is holy, and it is childlike trembling before the God who is infinite in holiness and infinite in mercy and infinite in love. Nothing would grieve us more than the thought of trampling on his love for us with the careless indulgence of our sinful passions. Work out your salvation and do it as understanding as an adopted child of God that his love for you, his grace for you doesn't indulge your sin but that makes sin all the more horrid and despicable and ugly. How seeing that he has loved us with such love, how can we continue to live our lives as though they are our own to do with what we please. Does not the love of God make sin the uglier before the brightness of the smile of his face? So the more we see the smile of God, the more we loathe the sin that's in our hearts. The more we see the loveliness of Jesus, the more we hate the sin in our hearts. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our responsibility. But see how Paul balances that strong exhortation to diligence and to effort and to labour. Holiness is our calling, it is our responsibility, it is our duty, but we're not to do it in our own strength. We're to work out of our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. The power to obey... We can't generate, thank the Lord. What a comfort it is to know that he supplies the strength and grace. So the holiness that is my calling, my responsibility, my duty, is his promise, his commitment, his pledge to me. He will strengthen me so that I can say no to sin and yes to godliness. So that walking in paths of new obedience is even possible the adopted child of God. You can obey. And if you're his child, you will obey. You will gain the victory by his grace. That's his promise to you. So think of it as you battle day by day with besetting sin. God says, I'm at work in you. I am working in you to will and to work for my good pleasure. I will not desert you to the 
predation, the predations of the enemy, to the power of besetting sin. I will not desert you. I am working in you. And I will ensure one day you gain the victory. What an incentive, what an encouragement to press on, not to grow weary in doing well, knowing that the resources we have to bring to bear in our combat with sin do not define the limits of our victory. It's the resources of God, the resources of the omnipotent Yahweh that guarantee that our victory will be complete. We will be made like Christ, so press on. You will cross the line. You will finish the race. You, he will bring you home. Do not grow weary in doing well. The first thing Paul says. So the first thing is work. The second is witness. The second thing he says, that the implication of knowing and grasping who Jesus is and what he has done is to work with witness. Uh, Philippians 2, 14 to 16 do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud I did not run in vain or labour in vain. This is what holiness should look like when it's lived out in the fellowship of the people of God. Paul again and again points us to the call of God to unity, to mutual love. And he reminds us of that Christian mind, humility. The Christian mind is marked by humility, selflessness and servant-heartedness. That's what it's characterised by. And we're to have that same attitude among ourselves that is ours in him. And here he emphasises those points again. Grumbling and complaining is really easy to do. Keeping our mouths zipped shut and serving when things go wrong is a challenge. But Paul says that when, when, when we begin to do it, when we put others before ourselves, when we humble ourselves and are obedient to our master, look at what happens. Look at what happens that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So it means that if we persevere and press on, we are involved in mission, we're involved in witness. People notice when, people, when, people, when Christians look like Jesus. People notice when Christians love one another with patience and humility. People will notice when you stop complaining and grumbling and instead you speak words of encouragement and faithfulness. When they speak the truth of God to one another, encouraging one another and all the more as they see the day approaching. Scripture is replete with Barnabases, isn't it? And sometimes encouragement from one another means exhortation. But a crooked and twisted generation sees light shine. So we don't try and be as much like the world as possible to counter the world. No, we try and be as much like Jesus as we can. This is Paul's 
if you like, exposition of Matthew 5, 14 to 16. In the words of Jesus, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Holiness will not be hidden. Holiness cannot be hidden from the watching world. People will notice when you give yourself over to live in for Christ. And there's another dimension to our witness. We must live a life of humility, service and unity and compassion, but we're to hold fast the word of life. And we shine as stars when we do both, when there's life and there's the words. A better translation is probably holding out the word of life or holding forth the word of life. We shine as stars when we live in unity and fellowship and love for one another, all men seeing that we're Christ's disciples by our love for one another, and when we open our mouths to speak the word of truth. Francis of Assisi was quoted famously by Maggie, wasn't he, from the doors of number 10 when she first got in there. But he said famously, go into the world and make disciples and use words if you have to. What terrible, what terrible, terrible advice. Don't listen to Francis of Assisi. Go into the world and make disciples and use words if you have to. There was never a disciple who did not hear the words of eternal life. There's never been a disciple who did not hear the words of eternal life. There's not a soul in heaven who did not repent and believe the gospel because they heard the good news. There is not one, nor will there ever be one, who came to Jesus because somebody else lived a holy life. They must understand why you live a life like that. For whom and by whose power you have been changed. That's why you must point people to Jesus. That's why we believe in mission. You must hold forth the word of life. Matthew Henry said, it is our duty not only to hold fast, but to hold forth the word of, of life. Not only to hold it fast for our own benefit, but to hold it forth for the benefit of others. To hold it forth as a candlestick holds forth the candle which makes it appear to advantage all around, or as the luminaries, of the luminaries of the heavens, which shed their influence far and wide. Are you a candle? Good question, isn't it? Are you a candle that's shining in a dark place? Are you a bright star that gives light in the nighttime of your college or your office? Does your character and your confession marry up? your life and your message cohere? Or are you afraid to speak for Jesus because you don't live for him? You don't want anybody looking into your life. The answer is, brothers and sisters, is not to refrain from speaking, but to repent of backsliding and seek grace available to walk in new obedience and then open your mouth to speak of the fame of Jesus. So work Witness and worship. The three components that Paul highlights is the faithful response to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's, that's been my message simply this afternoon. When we 
when we're presented with, when we revel in who Jesus is and all that he has done, we work, we witness, and we worship. Verses 16 to 18, Paul is talking to the Philippians about his ministry. He doesn't want to have laboured in vain. He's seeking to leverage by every means he can, every legitimate leverage he has to bring to bear on the Philippians to promote in them a life of obedience, but fruitful obedience. And he says, I've been labouring, and you say you love me, then obey. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He would say, how many pastors have you sat under? How many men of God have preached the word of God? How many years have you heard the good news preached? How many times have you heard the gospel presented? How long have you been under the sound of gospel proclamation and biblical exposition? Paul says, make sure their labours have not been in vain. Produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. Believe the gospel and live for God's glory. Make certain that those who have been set over you in the bonds of pastoral ministry do not labour without fruit to show when the great day dawns. That's Paul's concern. And then verse 17, it's even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering. And Paul is borrowing from the Old Testament sacrificial system to describe worship. This life of ministry given for the good of the church and the glory of Christ's name is an act of worship. And then he says, I want to Philippians, I want you to join me in a similar act of worship that covers their lives. He wants their faith and his life to be an offering that brings honour and glory to God. Because he says, likewise to the Philippians. I'm persuaded, I am persuaded that the scriptures command the people of God to gather Sabbath by Sabbath, to offer worship regulated according to Holy Scripture. There is a distinctive Lord's Day worship requirement that rests on the people of God. That doesn't mean that our whole lives are not to be acts of worship, but many times people say that all of life is worship, and it takes away, it detracts from the distinctive Lord's Day worship requirement. But I think Paul would say to us, when you gather on the Lord's Day for worship, when you gather on the Lord's Day for worship, if worship doesn't characterise all of life, if you aren't seeking to live to glorify God and enjoy him forever, how can you hope to do so when you gather together particularly on the Lord's Day? So there is like a correlation, there's kind of like a link. You may go through the motions on the Lord's Day, but if you aren't seeking to live for his praise Monday through Saturday, it could well be that you find your praises and prayers are empty and hollow before God with whom you have to do when you offer them on that one day. So Paul wants our lives as well as our worship on the Lord's Day to be given to God in worship and praise. And as we conclude, Paul says, such a life is a life of joy. Godliness and gladliness are ordinarily connected. I mean that, ordinarily connected. This isn't a life of austerity. 
or regrets, thinking fondly of the pleasures that I have foregone, foregone to live for Jesus' praise. Think of the football I could be watching. Think of all the things I could be doing. Not at all. Paul says, as I pour out my life in seeking to be obedient to the call of Christ on me, and as I urge the Philippians, you Philippians, to do the same, such a life is the good life. It is. Such is the, that, that life is the life of gladness and joy. I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. The happy life and the holy life ordinarily go together. I stress the word ordinarily. True joy and godliness ordinarily go together. You rob yourself of joy when you forsake obedience for the fading pleasure of the world because the world will never, ever, ever, ever fulfil. So there's a therefore that follows is the glimpse of Christ in the Gospel. There are implications. The implications have to do with working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It has to do with mission and witness. As you live for him, people will notice. And it has to do with worship. The life to which he calls us is a life that will bring glory to God and will be for our good. That's what we pray. It's for God's glory and our good. It is worship where he's exalted and honoured. And that life is a life that is suffused with joy. May the Lord be gracious to us to give us this life by his grace and for his glory. Our Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for giving your Son for us. We thank you for what we've been seeing about your Son. How he was humbled for us. He's exalted. He bled and died instead of us. He reigns with your right hand and by his spirit is at work in us to will and to do for your good pleasure in the strength such a promise provides. Would you send us from this place in Keswick this afternoon to work and witness and worship for your glory, for our good. In his name, amen.